And as Dan was saying last week as he started this short series, that um, there's no one gospel that contains all seven sayings. That we have to look into all four gospels to get the sayings. They're spread over the four. And this morning we're going to find ourselves in John's gospel. And I'm going to read now from chapter 19, verse 17 to 29. If you've not got a Bible with you, we're going to put it up on screen. Let's do that now. John chapter 19, verses 17. Carrying the cross by himself, he went to the place called the place of the skull, in Hebrew, Golgotha, where they nailed him to the cross. Two others were crucified with him, one on either side with Jesus between them. And Pilate posted a sign on the cross that read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. The place where Jesus was crucified was near to the city. And the sign was written in Hebrew, Latin and Greek, so that many people could read it. Then the leading priests objected and said to Pilate, Change it from the King of the Jews to, He said, I am King of the Jews. And Pilate replied, No, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they divided his clothes among the four of them. They also took his robe, but it was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said, rather than tearing it apart, let's throw dice for it. They fulfilled the scripture that says, they divided my garments among themselves and threw dice for my clothing. So that is what they did. Standing near the cross where Jesus' mother His mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother standing there beside the the disciple he loved, he said to her, Dear woman, here is your son. And he said to his disciple, Here is your mother. And from then on, the disciple took her into into his home. Jesus knew that his mission was now finished. And to fulfill scripture, he said, I am thirsty. A jar of sour wine was sitting there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put it on a hyssop branch, and held it up to his lips. Well, last week, for those of you who were here, you would have heard Dan focusing the words of Jesus on the cross, which were words of forgiveness. When Jesus on the cross prayed, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing, which is perhaps the most incredibly, utterly utterly awesome examples of forgiveness ever witnessed. Jesus had been treated so badly. He had been betrayed by Judas. He had been denied by his disciples. He had been mercilessly tortured by the Roman soldiers. He had been treated um, so unjustly by Pilate, conspired against by the Roman by the Jewish leaders, ridiculed by the crowds, and yet he prayed, Father, forgive them. Well, today I'm going to focus on two sayings which are found in our reading together in John 19. When Jesus saw his mother standing there beside the disciple he loved, he said to her, Dear woman, here is your son. And he said to the disciple, Here is your mother. And the second saying in our reading Jesus knew that his mission was now finished. And to fulfill scripture, he said, I am thirsty. 
And the thing that these two sayings have together in common is the humanity of Jesus. I don't know whether you saw that a few weeks ago. The media was um, uh, covered this uh, story. Uh, it was the story of Kayla Muller, a 25-year-old uh, girl from America. And she was killed through the Syrian airstrikes on the building where she was held captive by Islamic State, uh, by her abductors. And Kayla's distraught family shared with the world the letter, the last letter that she sent to them from captivity before her death. And it was an incredible letter. It was a very gracious letter. It was clearly motivated by her Christian faith. And she seemed really to, in that letter, downplay her own needs and fears. And she focused her, her thoughts and her concerns on the distress and the anxiety of her parents. And she said in the letter, please be patient. Give your pain to God. <clears throat> it was quite an astonishing letter, really. It was a, a letter of calm confidence in the midst of terrible trauma. Kayla, I believe, was imitating her Lord and Saviour Jesus, who 2,000 years before that time focused on the needs of others in the midst of his own terrible trauma upon the cross. As Dan spoke to us last week, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That was focusing very much on those who had treated him so unjustly. And now in our sayings today, it was first of all looking to his mother, showing, showing true humanity, and then to his young friend John. You know, throughout her life, Mary reflected, I'm sure about this, reflected upon the, the many revelations that she had about her son Jesus. For example, on the time following his birth, when the angels had visited and then the shepherds had visited, we read in Luke's Gospel, chapter 2, these words, that Mary kept all these things in her heart and thought about them often. And I'm sure she did. And I'm sure the one thing that Mary thought about most often was what Simeon meant when he prophesied over the Lord Jesus. I'm sure that many of you remember the story there in Luke chapter 2. Mary and Joseph take baby Jesus to the temple to dedicate him. That's what they w was prescribed by the Jewish law. They needed to do that. And in the temple they met a man by the name of Simeon. Simeon was a prophet. A prophet that, whom God had spoken to. And God had said to him that he would not die before he would cast eyes on the, the Lord's Messiah. And when he saw the baby Jesus, this is what he prayed. Chapter 2, verses 28. Sovereign Lord, now let your servant die in peace as you have promised. I have seen your salvation, which you have prepared for all people. He is a light to reveal God to the nations, and he is the glory of your people Israel. And then Luke tells us this, that Jesus' parents were amazed at what was said about him and Simeon blessed them and he said to Mary the baby's mother this child is destined to cause many in Israel to fall but he will be a joy to many others he has been sent as a sign from God but many will oppose him as a result the deepest thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and the sword will pierce your very soul and the sword will pierce your very soul. And I'm sure that Mary 
thought about those words many times on many occasions over the years that followed. What could this prophet Simeon have meant by that? In which way might a sword pierce her, her own soul? And now as Mary stood by the cross of Jesus, that prophecy of Simeon, all those years before, 33 years before, a sword would pierce her soul, were being fulfilled. I'm sure that we would recognize that Mary's life was full of pain and turmoil, starting at the time of her pregnancy when she was so utterly misunderstood and probably gossiped about the criticism and the shame that she that she experienced, but nothing was to compare with what she was now experiencing. And that as she stood there at the foot of the cross with her son being crucified. Crucifixion wasn't ever about killing a person. I hope you know that. Crucifixion was never about killing a person. Crucifixion was about killing a person with the maximum amount of pain. The Romans would not crucify a Roman citizen except, and there was only one exception, and that was if there was a Roman soldier who deserted from the army. That was the only occasion that they would do that. And it was regarded as hideously cruel, even for the worst of criminals. It was uh, scholar C.S. Lewis who once said that crucifixion did not become common in art until all who had seen a real one had died off. Isn't that a telling statement? All who had seen a real one had died off. Earlier this week, I, I read the account of a medical doctor who explained in great detail the suffering of someone who had been crucified. And I found the words horrendous. I found the words heartbreaking. And I'm glad, actually glad, that the gospel writers didn't include that kind of detail in their Gospels, and they didn't, and I'm not going to this morning. Mark, for example, just speaks of the crucifixion in four words. And they crucified him. Jesus, our Saviour, our Lord, he experienced that the worst that hell and the powers of hell could throw at him. And as he did, his mother watched on. She watched on as her naked, bloodied son in excruciating agony struggled for each and every breath. And yet, despite those sufferings, it seems as if Jesus was alert to the sufferings of his mother and also the sufferings of his friend John. John was the disciple whom Jesus had special affection for. And we are told that when Jesus was arrested, arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, that all of the disciples deserted. That includes John. But John's desertion was not for long, because here is John now at the foot of the cross with four women. That took a lot of courage, I tell you. Because they would have incurred the displeasure of the Roman authorities and the Jewish authorities, and putting themselves in great danger. I think we all know the story of Peter, the way that Peter disowned Jesus. Peter was the one who said, even if they all disown you, if they all deny you, I won't. I'm prepared to die for you. And Jesus said to Peter, you will disown me three times. We all know that story. And we know the story then of what happened some weeks later on the beach when Peter was reinstated. Three times he denied Jesus. And on three occasions, the Lord asked him, do you love me? Do you love me? We all know about Peter's reinstatement, but here 
in this story, we find John's reinstatement. It came when Jesus turned to his mother Mary and said, Dear woman, here is your son. And then to John saying, Here is your mother. It would appear at at this time that uh, Mary's husband Joseph had died. And since there was no welfare state, there were no state benefits, there was no uh, pension schemes, Jesus, as the firstborn son, had a legal responsibility for his mother. And he passed the care of his mother onto his trusted friend and disciple, John. And we read there in the reading together. From then on, this disciple, he always speaks of himself in the third person. He doesn't ever refer to himself as John. And this disciple took her into his own home. When I read that again this week, I I asked myself a question. Why did he pass the responsibility onto John? Why didn't he pass the responsibility perhaps onto his own brothers? And uh, you can come and tell me afterwards, but I, I didn't really have an answer for that. Not really. Not really. We can only surmise. But the one thing that we do know for certain was that at this time, the brothers didn't have a faith and trust in Jesus. They came to believe in him, and they came to believe in him after his resurrection, after they had seen Jesus crucified and alive again. And in fact, one of his brothers became one of the great leaders of the early Christian church, James, who was a leader of the church in Jerusalem. And he also wrote a book which is included in our New Testament. But John, many years later, wrote this gospel, and it provides us with an amazing eyewitness insight of the events on Good Friday. And it demonstrates to us that Jesus is not only God's Son, Saviour of the world, but he is also the Son of Mary, that he is fully human as well as fully God. Moving on to the second saying, in verse 28, Jesus knew that his mission was now finished, and to fulfil scripture he said, I am thirsty. A jar of sour wine was sitting there. So they soaked a sponge in it, put it on a hyssop branch and held it up to his lips. Now John informs us here that in saying, as Jesus did, I am thirsty, Jesus actually fulfilled the words of scripture. Words from Psalm 69 verse 21. And in the Gospels, on more than 20 occasions, we find the phrase, that it might be fulfilled. There were certain things that Jesus did, or certain things that happened to Jesus in his life. And then you find the words in the Gospel writers, that it might be fulfilled, or similar. And as Dan told us last week, there are more than 300 Old Testament prophecies actually fulfilled some centuries later in the life of Jesus. Prophecies which tell us about his birth, his life, his ministry, his death. That he would be born in Bethlehem. That was prophesied in Micah chapter 5 verse 2. That he would be betrayed by a friend. That was told, uh, foretold in, in Psalm 41 verse 9. That he'd be deserted by his disciples. Psalm 31 verse 11. That he would be falsely accused. Uh, that is told us in Psalm 35 verse 11. That he would be silent before his judges. Isaiah 53 verse 7. That he would be without guilt, Isaiah 53 verse 9. 
that the soldiers would gamble for his garments, Psalm 22, verse 18, that he would be crucified, Psalm 22, verse 16, that he would be numbered with the transgressors. That was fulfilled when they put him between two thieves. And that was told us in Isaiah 53, verse 12, that he would pray for his enemies, Isaiah 53, verse 12, that he would cry out upon the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? which was a fulfilment of Psalm 22, verse 1. That none of his bones would be broken, Psalm 34, verse 20. And that he would be buried in a rich man's tomb, verse 9. And what does that tell us? It tells us something so important. It tells us that Jesus dying on the cross was not the sad and unexpected end to a good man. Nor was it merely the result of the work of evil men, the betrayal of a friend, the jealousy of religious leaders, the cowardice of a, a Roman governor. But what it tells us is this, that all the, all the time that God is in charge, he was in charge of everything that was going on in the life, the ministry, and the death of his son Jesus and Peter says this in that great sermon that he preached on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. People of Israel, listen. God publicly endorsed Jesus the Nazarene by doing powerful miracles, wonders and signs through him, as you well know. But God knew what would happen and his prearranged plan was carried out when Jesus was betrayed. With the help of lawless Gentiles, you nailed him to the cross and killed him. But God released him from the horrors of death and raised him back to life. For death could not keep him in its grip. So John shows us here in our reading today, he shows us two things really through Jesus saying, I am thirsty. First of all, he demonstrates that this was a part of God's prearranged plan, God's master plan. It was the fulfillment of prophecy of long ago. And the second thing that John is telling us here is perhaps more obvious. And that is that Jesus was fully human. There's a staggering irony in these words <clears throat> that the maker of the hev heavens and earth, the, the one who created the seas and the oceans, himself had parched lips. And John, in his writings, he doesn't seem frightened of this kind of paradox between the deity of, of Christ and the humanity. And it's a paradox which Graham Kendrick put so beautifully in that song that he wrote some years ago. Meekness and majesty, manhood and deity, in perfect harmony, the man who is God, Lord of eternity, dwells in humanity, kneels in humility, and washes our feet. Some great theology in that hymn. Oh, what a mystery. <clears throat> Meekness and majesty. Bow down and worship, for this is your God. You see, Jesus was not exempt from the pain, the anguish, the suffering, the sorrow, the thirst. He wasn't immune to fear. And in fact, he identified with all of our needs. These are great verses found from Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to 16. So then, since we have a great high priest who has entered heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, 
For he faced all of the same testings we do, yet did not sin. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. I'll leave those verses up just for a few moments. They tell us something very, very, very important. First of all, they tell us that Jesus is our high priest. What does that mean? What does that mean? (coughs) When in the Old Testament times, once a year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest who was acting on behalf of the people entered into the most holy place in the tabernacle and then later in the temple to make atonement for the sins of the nation. And he would bring with him the blood of an animal as an offering for the sins of the people. The good news is that no longer do we need the blood of animals when we come before God. Because Jesus is not only the one who acts on our behalf as the high priest, as the high priest would act on behalf of the people, but he is also the sacrifice for our sin. And because Jesus, our high priest, made that once and for all sacrifice, there are no further blood sacrifices, animal sacrifices, which, which are required. Jesus is our mediator. There is only one mediator, one bridge, if you like, between God and men. That tells us something important, more important yet again in these verses, that Jesus is not only a high priest, but he's also a high priest who understands. What does he understand? He understands our weaknesses, for he faced all of the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. Now, I don't know about you, but when I go through a tough time, I always prefer to unburden myself to someone who will not just offer me sympathy, but someone who can offer me empathy. You know, not someone who will just come up and say, there, 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 Steve. Or someone will say, okay, I'll say a prayer for you, as much appreciated as those prayers really are. But people perhaps who have been hurt and bruised by life circumstances, and yet have come through on the other side. People who can truly understand what I am going through, not because they have heard someone else's story, but because they really understand. Not because they've read a book on the subject, but because they truly understand. And Jesus, we are told in these verses, is that person. He is that high priest. And if I might put it this way, that Jesus came to where we are and he got his hands dirty. He came and he sat where we sit. He came to stand where we stand. He came to feel our pain and to experience our hurt. And the God that we worship this morning is not a God who is aloof and far off. He is not detached and isolated from us. But he is a God who knows us through and through and through and through. You see, Jesus tested the temptations that are common to us all. And he knows. You know, sometimes a a young child may have a tough time at school, may get scolded by the teacher, bullied in the playground, fall over on their way home from school and cut their knee. But when they get home and unload to mum, and she says, I know, it seems so much better. And there's a child in all of us that when we come with our bruises and our scrapes and our sadness to Jesus, that we can come assured that we have a God who knows. So then, let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. 
There we will receive his mercy and we will find grace to help when we need it most. Because we have a high priest who understands our weaknesses and trials, we can come boldly to him. We haven't got to tiptoe into his presence. We haven't got to come with fear. Fear that we might be rejected or misunderstood in some way or cast aside. But he has promised us that he will treat us with mercy and grace. Isn't that great? You know, someone once said, and I'm sure you've heard this before, that the difference between mercy and grace is that mercy is God not giving us what we deserve and grace is God giving us what we do not deserve. Because of our sin, we deserve to be separated from him. We deserve his wrath and we deserve his judgment. But we receive mercy, God not giving us those things that we did deserve. But because of our sin, and we, we, we don't deserve his kindness and his compassion. We deserve nothing from him at all. And yet we have received salvation, we have received forgiveness, we have received eternity. And that is through Jesus. He is the way, the truth and the life. We deserve nothing, but he offers us forgiveness, gratis, free of charge. Quite amazing. We were once aliens and strangers, and yet he adopted us into his family. We were once sinful, and yet he wipes our slates, slates clean and declares us righteous, all because of Jesus. On earth, Jesus gave full proof of his deity. He spoke with divine wisdom. He acted with divine holiness. He exhibited divine power. He displayed divine love. He read people's minds. He knew people's hearts. He had a power of creation. He stilled the storm. He walked on water. He healed the sick. He raised the dead. But he also had full proof over his humanity. He entered this world as a helpless babe. As a 12-year-old, he asked questions in the temple. As a man, he became weary and slept in the back of the boat when the storm arose. He was hungry and he was tempted when he was tempted in the wilderness. He wept at the graveside of his friend Lazarus and he was thirsty on the cross. As someone once said, he thirsted so that we might never need to thirst again. So let's just bring this just to where we are this morning. Let me ask that question. It may be this morning that your body is, is, is racked with pain. I just want to say, so was his. Are you sometimes misunderstood, misjudged, misrepresented? So was he. Have you ever had your nearest and dearest turn away from you? They turn away from him too. Do you ever find your life in spiritual darkness? So did he. For three hours on the cross, there was complete darkness, and he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We not only have a compassionate and a merciful Savior, we have one who truly understands everything and understands fully what we are going through. This morning, I really want to encourage you to bring to Jesus your hurts and your pains, your bruises and your trials. Your anxieties and your sicknesses, your disappointments and upsets, your failures and your temptations. Because in Jesus, you will find a friend who will not leave you or forsake you, but a high priest 
who knows absolutely everything there is to know about you. Let's pray together.